Greetings again, everyone. Good to be back in Tyler after being gone for a considerable period of time. You'll hear in my voice the remainder of a very sore throat and a cold that I got up there about 9,600 feet where we were camped out while I was running around proving how inadequate I am compared to an elk. Uh, elk have very long feet. They have excellent eyesight. They have excellent hearing and sensory perceptions. They have great lungs, a good heart. They have hollow hair and a lot of it so they can stand out all night in weather that would freeze me to death. And time after time, when you're crossing blowdowns 15 feet above the ground, looking down, slipping around on snow, way up there in precipitous rock slides and what is called black timber and open parks with quakies and sage and so on, you realize over and over again how absolutely inadequate and weak and uh, ill-prepared and unequipped you really are. Now, in one sense, we're supposed to be smarter than elk, we just sang in our song that God has put all things under our feet, even oxen and so on. Sometimes I wonder if he hasn't accepted elk. Well, we do finally get close enough, of course, with our man-made rifles that eventually somebody can knock one of those animals off. But if you had to chase them by foot or even to try to kill them the way the Indians did, it would be a different story indeed. I think uh, God may have had a hand in giving Mr. Jim Brazil from Dallas the elk that he did, uh, I thought he was giving him to me <clears throat> until I saw out of the left of my vision a hunter down there getting into a better position than I was for a whole herd of them that I'd been watching for quite a while that uh, seemed to be working in our direction. But eventually he did manage to shoot a five-point bull elk, and I gutted him out for him, and I won't go into the bloody details. But uh, we sort of shared in that a little bit, and I did bring home a little deer for the locker, so all went well good to be back in Tyler again and to get back into the swim of things, but it was also very nice to be able for the 24th year in a row to be up in northwestern Colorado. It, it uh, recharges the batteries and does you an awful lot of good. You uh, go to bed about 8.30 and you get up about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning and you're out on a mountain by about 4.30 or quarter to 5 while it's still pitch black, sometimes walking about with a flashlight. And it seems to be a little better way to live in a lot of ways to me than it is even in a city or in your own home. It uh, teaches you one thing for sure, to be very thankful for hot and running cold water and nearby facilities and the kind of comfort that you have in your own home. You get to thinking when you're out like that, and you get to have an opportunity to look up at a myriad of stars that normally you can't see in a city and to lie there in your sleeping bag at night and hear a cacophony of sound or a symphony of wails and mournful cries out in the mountains, literally hundreds of uh, coyotes that seemed like to sing always at about 10 o'clock and again at about 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And they have this chorus, and then the rest of the night they're quiet. I guess they're running about trying to chase down a rabbit or something, and they can't be doing that while they're standing howling at each other. But they have a kind of a method of communicating with each other. Now, if you don't know a lot about coyotes, I imagine some people that aren't used to the wilds would be frightened by the sound because it sounds like they've got their tail caught in the crack of a tree and they're in terrible pain and it's so high-pitched that I couldn't even begin to imitate it. But, you know, every single night at a certain time, I'd look over a couple of big trees and there was the Pleiades there and I would spot all of the various known constellations, the few that I know at least, Orion. And then I would get up in the morning and they would be over on the other side and Orion's belt would be over there out in the west 
and I would see that the dipper had kind of rotated around, but still the edge of the pan always pointed toward the tail of the little dipper, which is the North Star. And while I was asleep, I was made to be aware again of the way the world rolls. And every day, day after day, I got to watch an absolutely glorious sunrise. So you're out there where you see the sunrise and you see the sunset, and you're out in nature. You're looking at everything from little ants bustling around, building their nests, to squirrels that will chatter and set up a racket when you come underneath the tree, and you wish they wouldn't because they're warning the other animal that something is wrong out there, to deer and elk and coyotes and all the other little varmints that are running around in the woods. And it really is an exciting time, a very interesting time to me, not only relaxing but a lot of hard work as well. You become aware of God's power of God's creation, of the incredible interdependency, of the complexity, of the intricacy, the harmony, and the beauty of nature, of the process of erosion, of how all of those rocks got where they were, huge, giant, building-sized rocks with sheer sides like basaltic formations and sometimes magmatic intrusions and cinder cones some of the great uh, volcanic-type formations that are in this particular area where I was hunting. And you feel so tiny and so small. You know, there's something we're very unaware of most of our day-to-day, work-a-day lives, and oftentimes even here in church. We talk about God. We preach about God. We use the name of Jesus Christ. We talk about spiritual things. But I am of the very deep conviction that only perhaps 1% of true spiritual awareness penetrates our minds in any given week and oftentimes even on the Sabbath. We use the word God like we use a name of another human being oftentimes, like we refer to a building or a state or a nation or an automobile or the Bible. When we say the name of God in the many, many names by which we know Him, whether Elohim or the great I Am or the Eternal One or just the English word God, we don't really, I think, conjure up in our minds and imagine a being of a certain specific size, shape, form, facial and bodily appearance, presence, or environment. Now, every time I think of my father... I think immediately of a person that impacts me in either a positive or a negative sense, depending upon what I'm hearing about or what I'm thinking about. I can hear his voice, I can see him in the pulpit, or I can see him sitting at the piano, or I can remember him spanking my bottom when I was five. I can remember him talking with my mother when I was 13 or driving a car when I was 16. I can remember hundreds of things about my dad. If I say a name of someone or you simply trigger my mind and our minds are like computers that have a bank of storage in there that is perhaps uh, billions of certain parameters or billions of mental thoughts or recollections, and I will immediately think, attaching to that name, a personality, all sorts of things by which I recollect or I remember that individual whose name you have told me. When you say God, what comes into mind? You know a certain amount about God. You know even more, in a way, I think about Jesus Christ, because in the New Testament you think of Him and you know of Him as a man, and you can read through His human experiences, and so you have a little better 
I don't want to use the word imagery because we're not to have an image, but a mental picture of who and what Jesus Christ is and even what he might look like today. If we sing as we just did and we just casually go over it, Thou hast made man a little lower than the angels, we think of angels. Now, I could be very dramatic and tell you that we have some uninvited guests in the room today, but you wouldn't believe me. It wouldn't make sense. You would say, well, he's just playing to the spiritual aspect, and he's a minister, and so he's supposed to sound kind of preachy and kind of angelic or godlike, and he's supposed to bandy about words like God and Christ and the Bible and angels. Have you ever spoken to an angel? Has an angel ever spoken to you? Have you ever heard an angel's voice? I can say, I don't think I have. I really am not aware of ever having heard an angel's voice. When Zacharias came out of the temple, they thought he went in there just to pray. He'd actually been given a vision of something that had to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. When he came out, he was tongue-tied. He was, mm, you know, he was trying to talk, and he couldn't. And he looked like he was pale-faced and astonished, and people began talking about it and wondered what in the world had come over old Zacharias. And somebody said, an angel must have spoken to him. Well, in the Bible it shows that oftentimes when angels did speak to some of men of God, some of God's people in the Bible, of whom we read Abraham, for example, others we can read of, Daniel, for sure, they were astonished to the point that they would faint and fall over nearly dead. They could barely breathe. They just could not cope with the experience. You know, the Bible mentions angels more than 240 times, that angels have an incredible amount to do, not only with the revealing of the Bible itself and conveying messages to God's church and to individuals today, but will have something to do specifically with your being conveyed to God's throne to the presence of Jesus Christ being picked up wherever you are by the scruff of your neck, I guess, or hopefully by your right hand, and ushered as you would usher a lady across the street corner into the very presence of God. Angels are mentioned in the Bible more than 240 times. Now, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word angel merely means messenger. means nothing more, nothing less. But because they are spirits, and the Bible says that God has made his angels spirits, we know they are unseen, hidden, spiritual messengers or beings. How big or how tall is an angel? How powerful are they? What kind of a voice do they have? Do they range all the way from tenor down to bass, or do they go all the way to soprano? Are they able to cohabit with the human race? Have angels and women ever married? And did they produce a generation of gigantism or of giants called the Nephilim? Do you know that most of the churches believe they did? If you'll turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, you will see an account where even Bullinger makes the mistake in Bullinger's companion Bible of not understanding what Jesus said in Mark 12, 25, which you can turn to later, which is the divinely inspired truth about the nature of these created spirit beings, which, I'm sorry, to the, me, to the female livers and the others who are now even changing the Bible, so that they will no longer refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but the child of God. And they will not refer to God 
as male. There are no masculine genders left in the rewritten Bible by the Council of Churches, but it is all now a neutered version, thus bringing to pass Isaiah 3.12, as, as for my people, children, their oppressors, and women rule over them. I'll get to that maybe in a sermon at some later time. I have a hunch that I'm going to become very unpopular in the years to come with about 50% of the human race, with the exception of those that are converted and know better. But the women of the world, especially in the Western world and especially in the United States of America, are being corrupted by a tiny cadre of lesbians and of others who are absolutely, utterly rebellious against Almighty God and rebellious against God's role for that half of human flesh that he took from Adam and made into Isha, or woman. Chapter 6, verse 1, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. That See, the word men right there means mankind. Obviously, daughters aren't born unto men, are they? So when men began to multiply, the woman had a part in that process, man's partner, and it means mankind began to multiply, meaning men and women in marriage began to have children. The sons of God, now who are the sons of God? Saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not racist. I happen to believe it is fact. If you read very carefully of what happened between Cain and Abel, and you read very, very carefully about the birth of Cain, and later on, the birth of Seth. When Cain is born, Eve does not seem necessarily pleased. She says, oh, it's a boy. She says, I've gotten a man-child from the eternal. But when the next boy is born, it says they begot a child who was born who was made in their image and looked like the parents. What I'm about to tell you is, I believe, scientific fact. I know that science has now discovered that every little baby girl that is born actually already in that tiny microscopic ovary has as a microscopic life form every egg she will ovulate for the remainder of her natural life. That's a lot of months, a lot of years. It's so microscopic and infinitesimal as to be virtually invisible, but it has been discovered, and it does bear out what I believe God will show us in the Bible, and that is that Mother Eve, at her creation, had inside her body the capacity to produce every spectrum of the color range of the human race. So that Adam and Eve, as well as other couples later on, their own progeny, until finally it filtered on down into the three basic color groups and then dozens of varieties in between, Adam and Eve had the capacity to produce a child who was quite dark, another child who appeared to be copperish-skinned or yellowish in cast, another one who might have appeared a little more like I think they appeared, which would be basically... Caucasian, which is to say Mediterranean, not at the other spectrum. If you took the blondes, the very light blondes of Sweden, and you took the Watusis or uh, perhaps the East African Highlanders with the thinner lips and nasals of the Maasai tribe, and said, these are the opposite color spectra of the human race, very light blonde and very, very dark, right in the middle is what is called the Mediterranean type, or the type that you would associate with Italians, with the Jews, perhaps even with Syrians. You can see very florid-faced Spanish 
In Spain, because they are not intermingled with the Indian races as they are in Mexico, the average Spaniard is as light and as light-skinned, and a lot of them lighter-skinned and lighter of hair, that is when mine was still black, than I was, or than I am, very florid-faced. I believe Adam and Eve, frankly, were in the Mediterranean caste. I believe that Cain, very likely, was a black man. I believe that Abel was lighter-skinned than his parents. And I happen to believe that not only was his conception of that sacrifice, which was right in God's sight, which was a picture of Christ, of an animal sacrifice as opposed to pulse or vegetables from the field, but there was a greater rivalry present. Now, when you read this, that the sons of God, and I can prove to you that they were men because it says the sons of God, merely meaning that men began to call themselves after the name of the Eternal. Verse 26 of chapter 4, if you get the original on that, says that to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Well, all these various names like Mahalaleel and Jah-red, that's Yah-red, Mahalaleel is a name which has on the end of it El, Enoch, all of those had the name of God. God was viewed as the father of the patriarchs. Now, your name may be a family name. It may not be a name. Mine is a name from a relative of another branch of our family, Garner, because the Garners, along with the Talboids and others, were branches of my family. So my mother chose a family name. Back then, they were very conscious of God. God appeared to the patriarchs. He walked and talked with them. He actually spent perhaps an aggregate of years with Adam. Who knows? And even with Methuselah, who, remember, overlapped the life of Adam and lived approximately one-sixth of all time until now. The patriarchs lived. Methuselah probably died in the flood and lived until the time of the flood of Noah. Methuselah and Noah were contemporaries. Adam and Noah, very likely, may have been contemporaries. These people knew each other. Knowledge was very rapidly accumulated. And so they knew of God, and they knew of something else. They knew of a forbidden area that was possible to reach by a laborious trip across a desert like Araba, over some very precipitous rocky mountains in the Anatolian Peninsula, over one of the deepest rift valleys in the world, and struggling up the other side, but their way was barred. And so for millennia, for generations, for hundreds of years, for centuries, literally millions of little children now, speaking all sorts of dialects and languages, were told a story of a land they might have called Uz, or maybe Oz, maybe the Wizard of Oz or the Wizard of Uz are the same thing. A land very, very distant toward the sea, reachable by a very torturous route across a blazing desert, across a river, and up very steep mountains, guarded by dragons. And the dragons would come roaring out at some intrepid voyagers, and they would seem to be capable of actually spewing fire like napalm out of their mouths. And they would make horrible sounds, and it would have a shining sword that would appear to be like a laser beam flashing in the, in the air. And so all sorts of stories grew out of this, like Jack and the Beanstalk and Jack the Giant Killer, and like St. George and the Dragon. Because, you see, when Adam and Eve lost their first home, God set cherubim. And cherubim looked like what? Well, the Bible will tell us, and we'll, we'll see a little later on, because they are a branch 
of spirit angelic beings. Angel doesn't always mean man. It doesn't always mean anything in a form or a shape you'd recognize. It can be a messenger, but it can be in some other form. And so they look like men, lions, eagle, and oxen, or like an aggregate of all four. And if you see the bulls of Bashan and some of the great monuments of Egypt and Babylon, you will see these great creatures that were actually reproduced by eyewitnesses. But the pagans began to worship these creatures instead of realize their place in the plan of God. And I have no doubt whatsoever that real cherubim were placed to guard the way to the tree of the knowledge of good, of the knowledge of, I should say, the tree of life or God's garden of Eden, which remained intact until it was destroyed at the time of the flood. But no man was allowed in there. I take it that for nearly one-sixth of all of time until now, that tree, if it was a perennial tree that continued to grow, if it was a literal tree like a great oak or like a great huge cypress or like the great General Sherman tree of the Sequoia Forest, still stood there with the wind soughing through its branches for hundreds of years, the tree of life and merely dropped its fruit on the ground, almost like a symbol of the futility of man trying to govern himself apart from God. When it said in verse 26 of chapter 4 that men began to call upon the name of the eternal, the original translation is men began to call themselves by the name of the eternal, and they included God's name in their name. Now, back in chapter 6, remember the Methodists, the Baptists, Lutherans, practically all of the Protestants, so far as I know, and I believe the Catholics also, assume that angels came down and actually had intercourse with women and that giants, distorted giant huge men, were the result. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. This does not mean necessarily just beautiful. It seems to connote light-skinned, blondish women. And there was a desire, apparently, toward that particular female. That, that seems to be a proclivity of the human race. Don't ask me why. I don't know that it's racism, but how many big, blonde, six-foot-six Swedes do you see lusting after African girls? Do you really see it in nature or out here in, you know, society? On the other hand, how many African men do you see who might lust after a nice five-foot-seven Swedish blonde. Well, now you're talking about something else, aren't you? Why is that? What are the very seeds of racism? Where did it come from, and why is it that black is associated with evil and white is associated with good? It's quite a subject, isn't it? And it actually has its roots in the very first parents and the very first few human beings on the earth, and with original sin, and with many, many churches and religions who have made the mistake of believing that the mark that was set upon Cain was a mark of a black skin. And for millennia, the Western religions have taught their progeny that black is equal to sin or to evil and the mark of Cain, and there has been a general hatred and a rebellion, resentment, and animosity toward the black male. There is a false story that is absolutely false that is circulated among every little white boy. I don't know if white girls learn it, about black males, about their macho, their prowess, and I won't go into details except many people assume that it is so. It is not so at all. All men basically are equal, but men, men have begun to think that that is so. So they think that very evil-minded women would prefer a black man. Not so. 
it is a perversion, in my opinion, for people to marry at the extremes of race, but if and when they do, they are married. They are married, and the church should not persecute them. Interracial marriages are not advisable, they're not good sociologically, but they're not, I don't believe, the unpardonable sin. And I believe that once they marry, they are married. Did this happen the way the great churches, so-called great, say? The sons of God, really they're only men, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, it also seems to imply, just from the language, that there was no parental consent involved, that there was not a family or a tribal type of a, an agreement here with regard to the marriage, and immediately you see God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Why? Why does God say, men saw fair women and chose whichever they wanted to marry, and immediately says, I'm not always going to strive with man. It's an inescapable conclusion that wrong marriages, interracial marriages, were beginning to occur. It's the only conclusion to which you can come. For that he is also flesh. He's only a flesh and blood human being. Yet his days will be in 120 years. That was the span during which Moses, I should say Noah, was going to be building the ark, as we will see. There were giants in the earth in those days. Yes, seeming also to apply gigantism as a result of the wrong type of marriages. Not angels. Remember in Mark 12:25, I didn't turn to that. It says that in the days of the kingdom of God that they will be as the angels which do not marry nor are given in marriage. So that in the kingdom of God, in Christ's answer to the Pharisees and their trick question about the woman who had many, many husbands and in the resurrection in the millennium, whose husband is she going to be, etc., he said they'll be like the angels because they do not marry. So angels do not marry. They are neuter. They cannot cohabit. They're not human flesh. They cannot produce seed by which babies can be born. It is nonsense. And yet scholars, millions of members of the great churches, honestly believe that this passage of Scripture says angels married women and the women gave birth to giants. There were giants in the earth. Well, there are giants in the earth today. Saul was apparently 12 feet tall. Goliath may have been 14 or higher. And you can just judge this by the fact that the span and the cubit uh, if it is God's cubit, which I think it was, which is approximately 25 inches plus the span of a very large hand, would be over two and a half, almost three feet for one cubit, and then just start measuring the number of cubits that these men were in height. These giants, I believe, their bones have been found. I think that in history they're called the Neanderthal man, that they had gigantic uh, bones, at the, even of, of mass as well as height. It wasn't that they were just tall. We have a lot of seven-footers around, and men are getting taller all the time. And there are men now like seven-four, isn't Samson? And what a name. His last name is Samson, and I guess that's his last name. I don't know anybody know that his mother knew they were going to have a, a baby that would look almost as tall as Samson. But uh, there are some like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whom I've had my picture taken with, and I come just a little bit beyond his belt buckle, I think. He looks like a normal man. I look like a little gray-headed midget standing next to him. 
when I was out in L.A. the last time, I go to a store where I buy my clothes, a cut-rate store, and they've got that black-and-white glossy of me with Kareem on the wall. And I walk in there, and I'm always nonplussed because it looks like I've suddenly shrunk, and I'm only about four foot six or something. He looks proportioned evenly. He's seven-two. If I stand very straight and very tall and I get up in the morning because you shrink during the day, I'm 5'9". And also if my cowlick is uncombed, otherwise I'm not quite 5'9". 7'2", you can figure the difference. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Now why can't the churches read that language? When the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now renown means renamed. It was a different day and age then. They were perhaps, well, if I read of men running along behind a chariot for hour after hour after hour, I'm reading of someone far stronger than a marathon runner. If I read of a man like Samson, who slew thousands of men with the jawbone of an ass, if I read of some of the great men of the army of David and of David himself, who went down into a pit with both a bear and a lion and killed them both, single-handedly and without any weapons in his hand, then I am reading of athletes and I am reading of physical prowess and ability beyond anything that I know of today. If I read of the days during the judges, the period of the judges, when there were 300 men left-handed who could sling stones at an hair's breadth and not miss, then you're talking about men who could group round stones with a sling closer than I can a three thirty eight rifle bullet in a target 100 yards away. And that is some kind of athletic prowess. Now, I've heard of sharpshooters who can stand all day and break little glass balls or shoot a little twenty two hole through a, a boy's block literally hundreds and hundreds of times without missing. And you can read of the Annie Oakleys and the sharpshooters that have done that. But with a sling with some of those what we think are of antiquated weaponry of the past. So these were giants, great huge men of giant strength, but they were not the progeny of angels. Angels do not cohabit with women. Today people are very, very excited about the possibility of meeting beings that come from outer space, from other planet, from some other world. Some of the greatest box office successes have been uh, encounters of a, what is it, a close kind it's called, or another kind of whatever it is, uh, or third uh, encounters, I forget the name of that one. There was one called E.T., I don't see them, but I hear of them, and I see them advertised on TV. And many other movies of that type. Recently, there is a, has been a protest in the last few days, I think up in Minneapolis, of a group of fanciers of UFOs who have charged that the federal government has captured aliens from outer space and is keeping them incognito. They are almost as intelligent, not quite, as the members of the Flat Earth Society, who will tell you that the most monstrous conspiracy in the history of all of humankind, costing $650 trillion at least, has been mounted to keep only 17 people at last count, deceived into believing the world is really round instead of flat as it actually is so that the entire space effort and every morning when you see the news and you see half of the globe there from the satellite or maybe all of it, every bit of that and literally tens and hundreds of thousands of human beings are all part of a conspiracy. Let's keep those 17 people of the Flatter Society deceived. The most important thing we've got on our mind is to keep them thinking that we know the world is round when we know it really isn't, it's flat. Well, there are people like that that are out there.
So these UFO believers, and other people I believe are confidently waiting for UFOs to catch them away, have charged that the federal government is guilty of having actually jailed some aliens from outer space and are keeping them incognito and they're demanding that they be released so that we can actually interview them and find out where they come from. Believe it or not, there is a daily visitation of the earth by beings or creatures from outer space. I happen to believe that at various times, even among men and, and women in God's church, there are companions who practically live in or about their home or their person. Sometimes I think there are unwanted companions, and sometimes I think there are little, or maybe they're not so little, struggles or battles going on in the air over our heads or around our home or over our roof or in our neighborhood between two beings who are locking wills, who are looking one another in the spiritual eye and challenging one another, and one of them or the other prevails depending upon you and the vibrations or the brain or mental waves, thought waves, if you will, that you emit from your body. Now you know you have an aura. We all know that. This is not new. There's a very great uh, advance in this entire thing of kinetic energy and the infrared sighting devices that are on the Abrams tank and even an infantry weapon that the American soldiers can now carry. You can actually be seen in the dark. We're learning every year how insects, especially mosquitoes and others, detect us. They don't just smell you because they get downwind from you. When it's pitch black, they can look around they just see this bright, reddish, glowing form that looks like a man walking along through the woods. They can see you easily, and so can other creatures see. I believe that perhaps even, not only do bats have radar, but I believe that eagles and hawks and others can actually see a little bit of the heat and the aura that is put off because owls and hawks, nighthawks especially, can see in the dark. It's not only the construction of their eyes that gathers light. As you well know, if you've ever hunted, you can have a very powerful set of wide-field 10-power binoculars, and when you're almost blind with the naked eye, you can put the binoculars up and they will gather light, depending upon the sharpness of the lens, and you can see with the binoculars. Now they have sighting devices, which can go even further, and they will show that heat or the infrared. There are camera techniques by which your aura, the heat and the electrical field that you emit all the time, can be photographed. And maybe you've seen some of those demonstrations on TV. I have. Whether you like to believe this or not, you emit waves like electrical particles of energy that are actually traveling outward in all directions from you by your mind. Have you ever sensed, not necessarily by body English, not necessarily by the look on someone's face, even when their back was turned to you, that someone was in a bad attitude, a bad mood, angry, or upset, not because they were standing with arms akimbo, or tapping their foot, or drumming their fingers, or wringing their hands, or chewing their fingernails, or popping their knuckles, or blowing in their hands, or loosening their neck. No body English involved at all, but you just saw someone, and you sensed, they are in a wrong spirit. I want to tell you two of my experiences of the past. 
We know in Revelation 12.7 and Revelation 12.9 that it talks about Lucifer, or Satan the devil, and his angels, of which apparently there are one-third of countless millions. Who knows? Many years ago in Ambassador College, there was a... Well, there are people like this that seem to go around collecting oddballs, I, I say. They seem to attract them, and I think I know why now. I can nearly always spot people. God has given me a certain amount of perception... It's almost a subconscious perception, and I have really learned to rely on it fairly heavily. It is not something about which I am spooky. It is about, it's something about which I am practical. I have learned not to ignore it when I receive those vibes, when I get that kind of a message, when I sense that something like that is there. I was in Ambassador Hall going about my business. I was walking into the Home Act Department on some errand or other when... Three or four people, including a couple of guests that I had never seen before in my life, and I never saw this person's face, entered the building, turned to the left, and were being taken on a tour to go into the beautiful salon there, the Rosewood Room, and to look at it. I was just going up the steps, headed the other way, and glanced at them. I glanced over there at these two women, one of them a younger one, one an older one. All I saw was their backs, and instantly I said, Seventh-day Adventist, demon-possessed or influence. It came to me just like a bolt out of the blue. I knew I was looking at a seven-day Adventist, and I knew there was someone that had a demonic problem. It came to pass that this younger woman was invited to stay in the apartment of one of the house mothers, and then for some reason was invited to sing in church on the following Sabbath. I finally got a glimpse from the front, and the person wore dark glasses, even at night. Even inside buildings, very smoky, dark glasses, you couldn't see her eyes. The dress was normal, wasn't abnormal. They wore hats. I thought that was a little abnormal. I'll never forget, and I think my wife remembers, we were still meeting in the Shakespeare Club. And this woman began to sing, and you recall she could not continue? But she began a number, and it was almost suddenly like it was not a human voice but a screech and a wail and the craziest sounds began to emit from this woman's voice. And she had to be stopped, or else she stopped, I forget which, and that was the end of that. Well, we found out that there were some rages and some tantrums and some huge crying jags, and here this woman was about to be admitted into the college and was being placed in a girl's dormitory. And I found one young man who now is still in the ministry and did not have the same perception, and I've seen several who did not, who decided, well, we've got to send her back to where she came from. Her mother went back up to the Central California Valley, and at that time, Mr. Ronald Kelly and his wife, Norvely, were brand newly married, and he was just a very young trainee. We were trying to maintain a church up in Fresno, as well as one down in in uh, San Diego, and the younger men would go up and they would drive, and they would take a sermonette man and a piano player with them, and they would drive the 400 miles up there. Well, it was Ron and Norvely's turn, and so this man, this minister, a very staid right-wing minister, and he was over the ministry at that time, made the decision that since this girl who'd had this problem, this emotional problem is what they called it, I knew better and tried to tell them so, should be sent home. Oh, well, fine. Ron and Norv are going to go up so she can ride with them. I said, oh, no, when I heard it. That is a foolish decision. So I said, I want, and I believe I said I wanted Frank McCready, and I believe one other, I've forgotten who, another, who? Oh, Bill Evans. Yeah, I wanted a couple of large men, strong men. 
and one of them I wanted to be a minister. I said, no, I'm going to insist that Frank McCready and Bill Evans ride along with Ron Norvelli to take this girl home. I guess an hour or so later, somebody filtered a message back to Mr. High Mucky Muck over the ministers. He got the message. He came into my office to see me to question asked about change, and his face was as white as a sheet. He didn't like Garner Ted changing his word. Well, I had hurt his feelings. I said, I'm sorry, but it's going to be the way I said, and I had the power to do that at that time, and if I ever met him again, I'd have the power to do the same thing again. But I told him it will be exactly as I said, and they will accompany this woman up there. Guess what happened? A demonic rage overtook her on several occasions in that car. Out of the blue, no reason at all, and Ron and Norvely could have been driven right off the highway or in a wreck or dead or torn to bits by this demon that was in this woman, and they didn't have the sense or the wisdom to know how to handle it. And these men, with Frank McCready, he would have to actually, using the name of Christ, command her at the top of his lungs to hold your peace and be silent and, and grab her, and then she would be quiet for a little while, it would seem, and then another rage would seize her, and she had the strength of two or three men. It was all those two men could do to hold her down until they got her back up there. And I'm not sure that was the right way to handle it. I believe that God's ministry, especially this man that contested my decision, should have had the power to have cast the demon out. You can say the same thing of me. I tended to run from such things. If I'm guilty of that, may God forgive me. I did. To walk up to someone that I felt had a powerful angel, a twisted, perverted, demented, demonic, filthy angel, in control of their mind and therefore their body, and with perhaps possessing superhuman strength, because I read in the Bible of one Siva, who had seven sons, who decided to say, by that Jesus, the name of Jesus, that Paul preaches, we adjure you to do thus and such, to one person who was demon-possessed, and that one man beat the daylights out of all seven of them, ripped every shred of clothing off of them, left them bleeding and wounded, all seven men. So, you know, I've learned never to toy with such a thing. There were several other occasions that I've had. I was thinking of one that I don't think I'll go ahead and portray to you because it's a little too frightening. My wife saying, no, she doesn't want to hear it again. I don't blame her at all. I've seen people's personality change from dark to light. Or I've seen a person literally be demonic and demon-possessed, and then I've seen them stable and normal. Later, I had occasion on one case where there was a young black lady, very sweet, very pretty, seemed to be absolutely natural, but she lost two children in a row. And the second time, after she lost the baby, she wanted it so badly, she couldn't understand because she was quite religious, and she began blaming God. And before long, the woman, quote, went insane. It wasn't insanity. It was demon possession. I'll never forget coming back from a trip to Ambassador College. I was met by some very frightened people who were talking about something Mr. Richard Plache and someone else was getting going among the student body. And it, whatever it was, was starting in the junior class. Well, it began with people having a nice jam session where they stood up and got very spiritual together, and one of them would say to the other one, I never liked you. When I first saw you, I hated your guts, and on and on and on, and they would go to confessing their deepest problems with each other because this was spiritual and this was righteous and this was godlike.
When I heard of that, I couldn't believe it. But there was some frustration over leadership and over getting into the ministry and some personality difficulties and this and that. And they thought the way was to have virtually a neo-revival. That's what I called it. Well, I came home and those students were so wildly excited they almost got sucked into the jet engines, almost ran under its tires, and would have, had I let them, borne me on their shoulders over to the place where we were to have the Bible study that night. My wife was quite upset. She said, you've got to listen to a part of this tape first. I've got to tell you what's about to happen. Guess what I found out? They had set me up. In the Bible study that night, they had about five or six of these people, these young men, students, designated to sit in certain places. At a certain moment, one of them was going to stand up and begin to testify in a loud voice. And we were going to go Pentecostal, brethren. I mean, in just a matter of minutes, everybody was just going to have a wild good old time. Somebody was probably going to speak in tongues, and we were going to go Pentecostal. And everybody was going to have more of the Spirit. They were going to find what they were looking for. They were going to get that fulfillment that they were frustrated and continually seeking. And they were playing with matches in front of a butane bottle. And they didn't know it. And they weren't afraid. I was, and I stopped it by talking so powerfully, nonstop, against that very thing that not a one of them ever had a chance to get a word in edgewise. But I was very aware, and I was loaded for bear, I wasn't going to let it happen. No, I've had some very embarrassing and some very frightening experiences with celestial beings who are far more powerful than I. And I don't toy with them. I don't seek to communicate with them. And I always ask God to place his angels over and under, as well as around and through my home from the days that I remember many, many years ago of problems of that nature that seem to afflict many of God's people. We are unaware, I tell you again, of the fact that we live in a physical world, a physical dimension, but that all about us and sometimes in us or through us capable of inserting a thought as as clearly as I'm capable of reaching out and touching you and you will feel the touch, so there are spirit beings, good and bad, who are capable of actually injecting their thoughts into your mind. The word angel means merely messenger. I want to go to the 22nd chapter of Genesis right quickly, give you a couple of quick examples. Now, I can't begin to cover this subject because, of course, there are 240 places and more in the Bible where angels are mentioned. In this particular chapter, the account where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, it says in verse 11, just as Abraham was about to kill his son, the angel, translated in the Hebrew, messenger. The messenger of the eternal called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad. Now notice, it's like God talking in the first person that it is a messenger from God or an angel. For now I know that you fear God. So now he's speaking, you see, in the capacity of a third party. Talking about, I know you fear God, God up in heaven. Seeing that you withheld not your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he called that place, I have seen or God sees me. Jehovah Jireh, verse 14, God sees, or I've seen God. In the Mount of the Eternal, it shall be seen. Verse 15, and the angel of the Eternal called on Abraham out of heaven a second time. 
and said this, and here's the blessing repeated and now made unconditional by a messenger. So you see, the calling of Abraham was done by an angel. The absolute unconditional guarantee to Abraham of a progeny and of kings to sit on the throne of Israel and of sand of seed multiplied as the sand of the seashore was done by an angel, an angelic messenger. So, verse 19, Abraham went to Beersheba, and it came to pass after these things. In verse 20, it was told Abraham, saying, and talks about all of the various genealogical reckonings there of who begat whom, and the rest of the story is given on through chapter 23, and how Sarah died, and then later on, I won't go through the rest of this, there's some more, but verse 40 in chapter 23 he said unto me, The Eternal, before whom I walk, will send his angel with thee, and prosper thy way, and you shall take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. I used to be aware and used to be conscious more when I was flying of the need for an angel, and perhaps I am when I'm driving. But I can't help but wonder, do we, when we think of driving along in an automobile, ask God to place an angel out there because they can just fly, they can perhaps be lying on their side or maybe walking along or whatever, but they can be sitting on the roof, they won't fall off, the air doesn't bother them. But actually, you can see that God will assign an angel to protect you or to protect your children. The Bible plainly says so. There's something quite interesting, by the way, that I won't cover today, in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the sign that a woman should have that she is under the power of her husband because of the angels. And you can ponder that and you can ask yourself whether a woman with a very masculine demeanor and a masculine haircut and maybe a very uh, lesbian type of personality, ultra-liberal, anti-macho male, etc., is not meant by that scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 and that any mother who would act that way or be that way is depriving her own children of God's protection. It says, because of the angels... And you read the, the passage, and it's very clear that if a woman is fulfilling her proper wifely role, that God will guarantee that the children have angelic protection. But if, the, if she usurps that role or abandons it, God just takes his angels away. I don't think God causes problems. I think God does not intervene to protect or to prevent problems or to protect us from problems by just withdrawing angelic protection that normally would be there. In Genesis 48 and verse 16, you'll notice that it is acknowledged that the angel was the one that redeemed Isaac. Genesis 48 and verse 16. He would have been dead at that time. No, I'm sorry, it is, uh, it is Jacob now. And he is talking about the wrestling match in the time when he saw the angel and actually struggled with him. He said, beginning in verse 15, He blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be named on them. Let's turn to Zechariah in the Minor Prophets. There are literally hundreds, as I said, and dozens and dozens, as you know, of references in Psalms and Proverbs and elsewhere in the Bible in many of the Minor Prophets, especially in Ezekiel and in Daniel. But I want to turn to Zechariah, chapter 1. The book of Zechariah has many, many references to angels in it. 
In the eighth month, the second year of Darius, Darius the Mede of the Medo-Persian Empire, came the word of the Eternal unto Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Iddo the prophet, saying, The Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. Now this word came. How did it come? In a vision, in a dream, uh, there was no written document handed him. Therefore, you tell them, thus says the Eternal of hosts, time after time after time, we read this language and it sounds like blah, 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 blah. The Eternal of hosts. Time after time in the Bible, God condemned the pagans around Israel for worshiping, quote, the host of heaven, end quote. That means armies or multitudes. We are introduced over 240 times in the Bible to a God, a great being out there in the celestial reaches of the universe, who is the God of multitudes, a God at the head of armies. And yet we tend to think of him as an isolated being, as a being that does not really have form or shape, but just almost like a thing, a something in the somewhere. And he is not vivid, and his throne is not vivid to us, and when we pray to him, we do not think of him in the same way Jesus Christ did when he said, and I can quote to you in Matthew 26, verse 53, when he was about to die, was being thrashed, was being crucified, don't you know that all I need to do is call upon my Father, and he would send me twelve legions. How many soldiers were there in a legion? I'm tempted to say 100,000 minimum. I don't know. But a legion, a Roman legion, meant a general was at the head, and that meant several divisions, and of course the way we divide it on down today, battalions, companies, platoons, and so on, and squads. And that's the way the military is arranged along the old Roman line. Perhaps a million men. Jesus Christ is saying, and it's not braggadocio, don't you know that all I would have to do is to turn to my Father and say, help me, Father, and 12 million angels would show up? What can you do with 12 million angels? Well, with only one, you could conquer Russia. Jesus Christ said God could send him 12 legions of angels. A lot of times you feel alone. A lot of times you feel abandoned. A lot of times you wonder if you will have the help or the strength to do what you need to do. A lot of times we worry. That's because we can't, as I can take on and off these glasses and see a little better to read, we cannot have a magic pair of glasses. But if we could, wouldn't it be an interesting exercise if we could have angel glasses that were the kind that suddenly we would see spirit instead of just flesh? We could put them on and look around and see every seat in the place is actually occupied when we think many of them are empty. Or we could see someone standing on the edge of the fireplace or seated on the piano and recognize that it is an angel that is actually in this room right now. He said in verse 4, Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? 
But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Eternal of hosts has thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius the Mede, came the word of the Eternal, the word of the Eternal, the Eternal of armies, the Eternal of multitudes, to Zechariah, saying, quote, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him where there were red horses speckled and white. And I said, O my Lord, using the word Adonai, like a title of a noble person, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said, Oh, then I see, all of this, the word of the Lord of hosts, the word of the Lord came unto me, came in the person of an angel that was just chatting with him. And he reveals to us, the angel that talked with me said, I will show you what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are they whom the Eternal has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Eternal that stood among the myrtle trees. Oh, well then, the man and the angel are one and the same thing. Now we can go back to the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis and see that in the rescue of Lot, three men appeared to Abraham. And Abraham said, Sarah, take a young bullock and dress it and get it ready. We're going to have a meal. And they had the meal. And it said the Eternal talked to Abraham. But actually it was an angel using the first person that God has said thus and such and so and so. Then you see that two angels went on to Lot's place over in Sodom and rescued Lot. But they all appeared as three men, just strangers, probably dressed in the desert garb of that time that came walking up. And that is exactly what it was in Hebrews 7, uh, 13 and verse 2 to which the Apostle Paul referred when he said, Some have entertained angels unawares. Sat down and eaten meals with them and didn't know they were angels, thought they were men. So here is the angel of the eternal. Verse 12, the angel of the eternal answered and said, O eternal of hosts of multitudes, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem, etc.? The eternal answered the angel that talked with me, verse 13, with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said, Cry thou, saying, Thus says the eternal of multitudes of angels, if you really wanted it spelled out. Now, there are all kinds of angels. I haven't got time but to just touch on it a little bit. So let's turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4 right quickly and get a little bit of a picture of God's throne, and I'll try to give you some to read later on to fill in. I think the, the subject... Well, didn't Billy Graham write a book? It's probably a good one. I haven't read it. On the subject of angels that became a bestseller. I don't know how much he knows or how much out of the Bible he actually saw, but it probably was fairly well researched, so I, I can't really comment. Chapter 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Now, I've talked about that before. God's voice, probably an angel's voice, because of what? Any of you think of the scripture that would tell you it must be an angel and not actually God the Father? Because Christ said, you have neither seen his face nor heard his voice at any time. So we always know that if you read in the newspaper, the United States said to Russia... It wasn't 250 million voices that said that, and it wasn't even President Reagan that said that. It wasn't even George Bush who said it. It wasn't the Congress who said it. It was a messenger 
from the U.S. Embassy, and it probably wasn't even the ambassador himself, but an embassy attaché who took it to another attaché who took it to the Russian ambassador who finally took it to a member of the Politburo who finally took it perhaps to the head honcho, whoever he might be. There are rumors now that the latest one has died in Russia. And it says in the newspaper, the United States government said, first person, God says in first person, but through an angel. He said, come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. Ah, well then angels have a great deal to do with giving and revealing and interpreting prophecies to men. Some angels seem to deal with world events in a very powerful and a very effective way, as we will see briefly. And immediately I was in the Spirit. I've never been in the Spirit in the way John was in the Spirit. Once, the nearest thing I ever had to a vision was sitting in the sermon when I seemed to actually see, because this was a sermon to which I was listening, not one I was giving, the reality of the second coming of Christ, of what it would be like. And then one time I actually thought I was about to experience it when I was flying the Falcon and saw the launching of a missile which appeared to be something brightening coming toward me. I won't go into that. It's quite a story. But I have never been, as John was, transported into a higher level of consciousness into a third or a better or a different dimension. Paul was. Paul said that 14 years earlier, he said, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I really can't tell, caught up to the third heaven, who heard unutterable things that it's not lawful for a man to speak. And he said, of such an one will I glory. God gave Paul a vision of heaven. Let's not be embarrassed. He said third heaven. I know we don't preach heaven. Well, maybe we should because it shows that God the Father as well as Christ are going to be on the earth and heaven is the place of God's throne. And Paul was given an advance, an advance preview of heaven. He was given a vision of heaven and heard heavenly voices. It talks about men eating angels' food and hearing heavenly voices. Here is a door. It opens up that door, and it's almost like he puts on these spiritual glasses, and he sees all of a sudden, just like being in a dramatic, uh, cinematographic play or movie. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat upon it was to look like... You ever seen a jasper? Now, jasper isn't always red. It comes in every hue of color. And if you know much about gemstones, which I don't, but things like amethysts and uh, garnet is my birthstone, I think. And isn't it a kind of an amber, dark brownish red? I'm not certain. But uh, chalcedony and sardonyx or sardine. And I think that's a greenish stone, if I'm not certain about it. Forgive me. And there was a rainbow round about the throne. Well, you know, you always exclaim over a rainbow, especially a brilliant one, especially two of them or even three of them in a row as the refraction of light through tiny particles of mist will produce a beautiful rainbow. In sight like unto an emerald, so the green blaze. Now, I have a beautiful diamond ring that it took me many, many years to accumulate, and I kept trying to lose off my cufflinks, so I put them all together. Once in a while, when the sun will strike that just right, it nearly blind me. Or if I'm sitting and the sun will hit it and then shine off against the wall, every one of the primary colors of the spectrum will be there the purple to the blue to the green and the yellow and so on, just absolutely gorgeous, bending the light rays, taking apart light into its primary colors the way God built it, 
and simply redistributing it the way it does in nature through this crystal and looking like a rainbow. And the rainbow never fails to be exactly in the same arrangement, doesn't it? It's always the same. Just beautiful. If you see a sunset with some mist and, and just glowing hues that just make you catch your breath, he's describing something that beautiful. And around about the throne were 24 seats, 12 on each side. Which one, again, I request, you know, information just going along, was the chief seat. Well, maybe the closest ones to God's throne, but there were two, weren't there? One on either side. And apparently we get the picture of a sort of a semicircle with the throne either in the middle of it or the throne at the end and the two long rows of twelve seats on either side. They were elders. Now, what does that tell us? Well, they were elderly-looking men apparently snowy-haired and white-bearded, and they would be recognized as elders, elderly-looking men, but they were spirit beings, clothed in white, and their heads had crowns of gold. And nothing is more beautiful. You ever been to the Vatican Museum? Have you been to see the British crown jewels and seen the Star of India in the scepter? That diamond is that big around. It knocks your eyes out. When you look at Elizabeth's crown and the one with which she was coronated and you see diamonds as big as a fist, you cannot believe your eyes. You just stand there and your mouth hangs open and you're saying, I have never seen anything more beautiful. It's not a matter of something that is, quote, valuable. It is priceless. You could not put a price on it. It's not something someone would wear. It is something that was dug out of the heart of a volcano down near Kimberley, I suppose, in South Africa, and one of the rarest of all gems on the face of the earth, made out of pure carbon a billion years ago, maybe, by a million degrees centigrade in the heart of a volcano by Almighty God, by a process that he made and put into, into being. So these crowns would be absolutely dazzling. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Now, if you've been outside in a lightning storm and lightning ever struck a tree near you, uh, and I have, I've been on a lake when lightning struck a tree and briefly just made it blaze up, and I've seen lightning struck trees just as recently as a few days ago. We went by a field one time in a driving rainstorm, and Benny looked over, and right in the middle of a thunderous downpour, there was a tree, every bit of it, ablaze from top to trunk, on fire. We went by it so quick, I didn't get to see it. Benny saw it and exclaimed about it. But a lightning bolt had struck that tree, and it was just in the process of being incinerated in the middle of a driving rainstorm. Lightning, thundering, and voices, powerful voices. And seven lamps of fire. Now, that would be like great, you know, stands with a huge bowl of flaming fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was a sea of glass like unto crystal. So it would be like a huge platform made of solid quartz or diamonds. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four creatures, all facing outwardly apparently, full of eyes before and behind. I won't have time to go to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, the two chapters that describe the cherubim and the throne upon which the Son of God, Christ, rides and is conveyed about through the universe. But it looks exactly like some of the apparitions that people have seen. And it makes you wonder because it talks about a wheel within a wheel. What is a wheel within a wheel, as far as we know, that man has invented? Well, if you can go down here to the uh, Five and Dime store and buy yourself a little gyro toy, you can get that thing and you can spin it and get it to spinning. And all it is is a little wheel 
set the opposite direction in a little ring that weighs approximately the same amount, and then you can just hold it in your palm and it will set upright because the centrifugal force of the wheel going about will actually keep it absolutely upright. And the slightest bit of movement, and it will still be upright. You can move your hand under it. It will actually stay perpendicular all the time. Gyros are very, very accurate to the umpteenth tiny centillionth, I guess, of a degree. So that they sense, based upon the pull of gravity, the exact perpendicular relationship of a gyro to the heart of the earth, and you can govern the movement of aircraft and even, of course, their uh, navigational ability by inertial navigation system which uses gyros over the earth by a wheel within a wheel. When you read to that great platform that was let down and the angels which stood with their wings covering their feet is this sign of humility in front of a deity and so on of the first and the tenth chapter of Ezekiel and it says, I knew they were cherubim. They had four faces of an oxen, a man, an eagle, and a lion. The greatest of all domesticated beasts, the greatest of all flying creatures, the greatest being who has been put over all other creatures, man, and of course the king of beasts, a lion. The oxen is supreme in the area of the bovine or domesticated family. The eagle is supreme among all flying creatures. Man is supreme over all. The lion is supreme over all the beasts of the forest and fears none. Why did God do it that way? Further question that sometimes kind of bothers me a little bit. Is what we see in nature among the lovely creatures, Garanuk, the wildebeest is not quite so pretty. The uh, blessbok, the gemsbok. You ever you ever see one of those? A gemsbok that are black and white with huge, long, saber-like uh, antlers that go up, and they are of a certain family of desert gazelle, of which the adax and the oryx are a relation. And the gemsbok is black and white with almost just brilliant stripes, but is, is a huge gazelle in Africa. And the eland, which is the biggest of all, that perhaps could weigh up to a couple of thousand pounds. You look at all of these creatures from a little diker, a little gray or a blue diker called a dick-dick, the world's smallest little deer-like animal with antlers or horns about that long and not much bigger than a jackrabbit. And I've seen them actually in the wild, darting about and just rushing to, to disappear into the woods. And then you look at all sorts of creatures that stand your hair on end, that make you frightened, that are revolting to you. Certain amphibians, snakes, a tarantula, certain crazy-looking insects with wicked claws and stingers. Why is it that we look into the Bible and we see great and majestic creatures used in the banners, the shields, and the emblems of nations? And what nation does not use an eagle? Germany, the United States. What nations don't use lions? Many of them. The British lion, etc. And even oxen, etc. And men, certainly. But what nation uses a frog? Uh, what nation uses a mosquito? Or a wasp? Well, they don't, do they? So it makes me wonder. It does make me wonder. I know that perhaps God used other spirit beings in the creation. It makes me wonder if there were certain creatures that were not added this side of the Garden of Eden because God said from this time onward the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles and apparently previous to being driven out it would not have and he said from this time onward the serpent will not walk 
as we see it depicted in mythology and also in the Bible, standing upright, and the Hebrew word is nakash, N-A-C-H-A-S-H, which does not mean a serpentine snake crawling along the ground, but an upright being looking exactly as a seraph. Isn't it interesting that just a slight little change in the Hebrew word, one little accent point, is different between seraph and saraph, and S-A-R-A-P-H means a winged flying serpent or a dragon, and S-E-R-A-P-H means a seraph, one of the creatures, next to the throne of God, and what does it say of Lucifer? Thou art the cherub that covereth. And I think cherub and seraph are almost synonymous. I cannot understand, however, that in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the seraphim that cry and then take the tong from the altar and fly to touch Isaiah's lips as if to symbolically purify his lips to give him God's message, appear to have six wings, two covering their face, a symbol of humility in the sight of deity, two covering their feet, likewise, and two with which they seem to fly. Where the cherubim seem to have four wings, four heads, and are full of eyes before and behind. I can't quite figure it out. To me it is fascinating and something of wonderment. But it's also real. God, the Eternal, is the eternal, ever-living, ever-present one who dwells in the midst of his hosts. He dwells surrounded by intelligence. He dwells surrounded by counsel, by conversation, communication, and knowledge. And there is nothing hidden. God is at the receiving end of the most vast intelligence apparatus that has ever been constructed, better than the KGB and the CIA and all the news bureaus and wire services put together, because God can be, at any time he wants to tune in, attuned to the very thoughts of every man's mind. Is there a channel? Are there reporters? Are there beings ready to immediately convey to God a particular thing that is going on to which they want God to listen? I wish I had the time to go through the council in heaven, the lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets, the arrow at random that struck a king of Israel between the fifth and the fourth rib, and how Almighty God would actually listen to this one and that one, or to go through the first few chapters of Job. There came a time when the servants of God, the angels of God, presented themselves before the Eternal, and Satan came among them. And God said, Where have you been, Satan? Oh, I've been walking to and fro and up and down in the earth. Well, have you seen my servant Job? Oh, yes, I've seen him. An interesting conversation. Satan the devil could not touch Job, except that God said, All right, I'll allow you up to thus far, and no further. And you can read the story that Satan actually at that time was still able to appear. I won't read all of this, but it shows in verse 7, the first was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third a face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four creatures, not beast, beast is a poor translation, had each of them six wings about him, and were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. We have a song, and it's a beautiful song. Unfortunately, it has Trinitarian overtones. God in three persons, it says in the third verse. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We used to sing that. Maybe it's in our book. I don't know. But it used to be even a theme song, and it has very beautiful harmony. Can you imagine the kind of music with which God is surrounded? 
These creatures don't have to lie down and go to sleep at night. It says they rest not. There is no night in heaven. Night is something that is, is required for our human bodies to rejuvenate and the bloodstream to flow and to feed us and little capillaries to swell out in our eyeballs and carry away the impurities and to rest our bodies and to get us up refreshed because we're just flesh. We're just like so much yeast or cheese or dirt or dust or just plain old hamburger and we've got to be refreshed. The spirit beings are like a dynamo. They are like a sun. They are like a nuclear furnace. They are continually self perpetuating and self-powered. And so, interminably, around God are these great beings praising God, telling God He is holy and marvelous and wonderful and good. You know, I imagine that a child desperately loves to be acknowledged, to be congratulated, to be told by his parent that he is a sweet or that she is a beautiful child, that the parent appreciates them. But you know what happens to a parent when a child will take time once in that great rare occasion to turn around and to tell a parent that they love them and that you are the greatest mom in the world or I've got the greatest father in the world. You know what that does? It just absolutely melts you. It nearly, it just destroys you. You don't ask anybody to talk. You can't talk. There's a really great ad. I think somebody talked about it not too long ago. The old black lady on the Ma Bell ad that talks about reach out and touch someone. And she said, he, well, then why did he call? He's saying, well, just because he wanted to say, I love you, Mom. It's a great ad. Somebody had such a good idea to put that on. It's, it moves me in spite of the fact I've seen it a dozen times. Do you know that our Heavenly Father so loves to be loved by us that he tries to get the message to us time and again. It isn't that he demands it. He wants us to realize that he has earned it. That's another ad we see. That God has earned our love. When I come back off of those mountains and I think of the perfection of a little blue spruce and I see these giant elk and these beautiful little deer looking at me and messing around and I'd come up on several of them and wouldn't see me and they're just doing their thing and they're licking their body and they're scratching behind their ear and they're eating and looking around and wondering who is there and I look at those beautiful little deer and just absolutely exult and rejoice. I feel like I'm standing there and I'm as much a part of that forest as that tree over there. I'm just a part of the earth. I'm a part of God's creation. I'm one of his creatures. I'm seeing them and sensing them and I'm being with them and you just I mean it just fills your heart it, you can get closer to God I, I believe in nature and even during a hunting trip as bad as you may think that sounds at, at going out and trying to kill one of those poor little animals some people feel that way about it but you can be closer to God at a time like that because it strips away all the machinery and the, the artifices of man and it puts you out there next to nature you know if you can't appreciate color, symmetry, beauty, harmony, a laugh, the emotion of love, how good it feels to sneeze when you need to, uh, the absence of a cold or a sore throat, a feeling of well-being, a feeling of rest, a feeling of accomplishment, a feeling of creativity, of having produced something, uh, success in your children, love between parents, and realize every one of these great emotions God gives us when do we ever give any back to him? It's just exactly like in this scripture of these great beings, so much greater than we are, and they're continually praising God. 
when I see some fake charlatan, some little nasal, twangy, colloquial fraud on television saying, let's just praise the Lord, like a sassy little washerwoman somewhere, it makes me furious. I can't stand it. It just it is revolting. It is blasphemous to me, just blasphemy. The emotions I'm only uh, failing in trying to convey to you today and the awareness of our God of multitudes and of who and what they are, of where they're likely to be, what is their function, what they do, that is on a plane so much more glorious above that falter all I'm talking about, people banding about, let's just praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. Uh, well, it happened this way, praise the Lord, and that way, praise the Lord. That is blasphemy to me and is not what I'm talking about at all. You know, you can praise God at certain moments when you can say, well, praise God that this or that happened with move, with, with the feeling of, of you know, the, the movement of your heart or your emotion, which I think perhaps would bring a tear to God's eye. I think there are times when you can give back to God the love He gives you and that He can be moved. I would like to think so. So those four creatures, verse 9, when those four creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I think, in another connotation. They don't just sit there, and they don't cheer like in the bleachers at a football game. They just pile out of those great exalted thrones and fall on their faces on that translucent, beautiful sea of glass, and they worship him that lives forever and ever, and cast their throne, their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Read Daniel 10 of the great struggle of the archangel. By the way, some, someone once told me, well, archangels are not mentioned in the Bible. Oh, yes, they are. There are two places. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Jude 9. Jude 9, the archangel Gabriel. It says the archangel. Now, an archangel is a great higher angel of whom there are only three mentioned in the Bible. And if you look at the 10th chapter of Ezekiel, then read the 11th chapter, the lengthiest prophecy in the Bible, and continue through the 12th chapter, you're reading angels' words, you're reading Michael's words, and you're reading, I'm going to refer just real quickly to one portion of that in closing here. Believe it or not, this was a great battle, a great struggle that took place to bring about the decree of the man that was called by the Greeks Artaxerxes or Cyrus the Great, who allowed the Jews to go back at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to build the temple. Satan was trying to thwart it. There are seven absolutely perfect, flawless methods of reckoning to prove the exact date of the beginning of Christ's ministry and that of the death and the ministry of John the Baptist and the building of the temple is one of them, as well as an astronomical reckoning. And it had to do with the rise and the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire and with the fact that Cyrus was mentioned by Isaiah by his name 400 years before he was born in prophecy. And God's will was going to stand and was not going to be thwarted, and Satan the devil was trying to break the entire plan and program that led up to the birth and the life, the ministry and the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He tells Daniel, 
He said in chapter 10 and verse 10, Behold, an hand touched me, which set me... Well, read, I won't read it all, but read in verse uh, 5, when it talks about a certain man clothed in linen, gold girded his loins, body was like burl, face like lightning, eyes like lamps of fire, and arms and his feet like polished brass. Looks just about like the first chapter of Revelation where it's describing Christ, doesn't it? But it's not Christ. In this case, it is an archangel. And it says that it is Gabriel doing the talking. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. He was, of course, astonished. And he set him upon his hands and knees. He was prostrate, verse 10, and said, I am now sent to you. And I stood there trembling, verse 11, and he said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you did set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself before your God, your words were heard. Here is an archangel saying, Daniel, you're just a human being. Your, your voice can't even penetrate the wall over there. You can't even be heard outside the palace grounds. But from the time you began to pray, even in a whisper, I'm here to tell you, Daniel, your words were heard. What would that do to you? What would that do to you if in the privacy of your home, a great being that looked like this, that sounded like a thunder roar when he talked, shining and glowing, were saying, from two weeks ago, when you began to pray about this problem, your words have been heard by God. Well, all your hair would fall out. I mean, you would just about, you know, it'd just scare you half to death. Or why would it, though? I mean, when you stop to think about that, shouldn't we really expect that when we pray, God is hearing? Well, read the rest of it. It says in verse 13, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him for three weeks, but, lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Nobody else stands with me, he said in the closing verse of that chapter, except Michael, your prince. I, verse 1, chapter 11, in the first year of Darius, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Here is an archangel strengthening a king of a great empire because that empire had God's nation, the Jews, in captivity and their very future and the word of God and every prophecy even relating to John the Baptist and Christ's ministry was at stake. I find it fascinating to read not only of God and of Christ, but of the host of the perhaps millions and hundreds of millions of beings and of creatures that serve God, that are his messengers, and that are called our fellow servants, ministering spirits to help us, and that actually protect us, receive and convey messages, can actually convey to God our thoughts, can protect our children. And it says in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that we are to qualify to judge angels and to decide whether these beings, much greater than we are today, have been doing a good job or a bad job. If I could, I would tell you that we have some special guests here today. That from the time of the opening prayer, and hopefully before, because some of us brought perhaps some guardian angels in with us, maybe they delayed and came through the ceiling instead of walking through the door. But if you don't believe that, then you don't believe Almighty God is on His throne because He is the God of hosts. And perhaps He has assigned one of those powerful beings just for you.